You're listening to the Mobcast Network. And roll sound. Sound speeds. And marker. Action. Welcome to Between the Line, a filmmaking podcast that navigates the line between professional and fandom. Tech and creative. Success. And we are your hosts. I'm Horst Sarubin. I'm Drew Hall. Welcome to the show. Hello, Drew. How are you doing today? Good, buddy. How are you? I am very excited for today's episode. Oh, my God. This is like... You know, the cinematographer in me is nerding out. The yeah. fanboy in me is nerding out. The creative in me. I mean, every aspect of this, I'm, I'm geeking out a wee bit. We, we have a guest today, um, uh, Alex Funky, ASC. Uh, That's correct. The, the little, little, he earned it. He did. He earned it. Uh, if, you, if you don't know Alex, um, he's a cinematographer who specializes in visual effects cinematography. Uh, and he, I don't know, I call him like the godfather of visual effects cinematography. If you look at his IMDb page, he's been around and, and been on so many things. And that's just what you see on the IMDb page. He's done other things. Um, and I think beyond his credentials, beyond his ASC, beyond his uh, three Oscars, uh, he is an amazing human being that is just absolutely full of, of wisdom and intelligence and very happy to share it. And uh, that's one of the things I love most about him. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's um, having spent time with him, uh, Horst and I were both fortunate enough to, Horst worked with him more than I did back on The Hobbit. And um, uh, did you do Narnia? You did we Narnia, did Narnia together. So you, you, you've gotten to kind of spend time with him. I got a taste of Alex, right? I got to spend a wee bit of time with him on ether. And I will tell you from firsthand experience, it's, it's hanging out with one of the coolest filmmakers you've ever met who also is, and I mean this not in an age sense. I just mean this in a wisdom sense is like standing next to the ultimate grandfather, sort of father figure type guy that, that will literally will change your perspective on life in three conversations. It's an amazing human being. I, I love him dearly. Yeah. And I, I feel blessed that I can legitimately call him a friend. You know, that that's, you know, what's great about it. And a little interesting thing on, um, on Alex, uh, we, we've done the, the interview and I just, for me, you think, okay, this is cinematographer, this is visual effects, you know, it's very technical. So much of his advice is instrumental to storytelling. Absolutely. Just every point of the way, it's about story and storytelling. And I think the the writer in me got so much more out of this than like the technician in me. And, I, and that's not, you know, a slam on Alex. It's just how amazing that, you know, his brain can bring all that stuff together. Well, look, I, I think from a, from a filmmaking perspective... If you uh, only listen to one episode of Between the Line, <laughs> it's this one. It should be this one, and and the reason why is it forget sub- subscriptions. Yes, we would love for you to stick around because there are we have tons of people like Alex um, lined up, and that's the plug for the show. But it's more a matter of you're about to hear filmmaking advice from a gentleman who has been in the industry so long and has experienced so much and has been on some of the biggest sets, the smallest sets he's done. I mean, ether was a small, tiny thing that has nothing to do with anything huge. Hopefully one day it does. Yeah. Right. But like you get the idea, like this guy has, he's seen every side of it and he gives a perspective that every, every person, even considering film, whether you are an experienced or you are a novice. I mean, this, this is, yeah, just, just listen to what the guy has to say, and it, it'll change your perspective. And, and maybe have a pen ready, because he just starts spouting things off, and you're like, oh my, that was amazing. You just want to write it down, and then then something right behind I made it. notes the entire and way. So chock full of amazing information. I guess we should, speaking of you know uh, thinking and all the things Alex is going to tell us, we should probably get our brains ready with some delicious Fosco coffee. Absolutely. I've got my cup sitting <laughs> right here. Listen to the, the proof that I have it in here. Yeah, we um, we want to thank uh, our sponsors, uh, Fosco Coffee Bar in Pensacola, who um, supply us with lots of delicious coffee that is filled with delicious caffeine. Absolutely. And, and also we want to thank ScreenplayReaders.com, uh, where if you head over to the website uh, and you place an order for some uh, coverage, you can get uh, 10% off your total order by typing in between the line at the coupon code area. Again, that's between the line at the coupon code gets you 10% off. And, you know, you've heard us talk about them. Or if you haven't, we use them regularly. We're big fans of them. And, and as far as coverage goes, they're our favorite source to go to. So Consider jumping over there. You can also find it on our website, uh, frame29films.com, or you can also contact us via email. Which at uh, Between the Line Podcast at gmail.com. There it is. All and we're on iTunes. 
Yes, we are. And, and subscribe. You know, if you, if you can help us, obviously like us. Um, comments really do well. And, you know, this is the shameless plug that everybody does. But the reason why we do this is because it helps, you know. And if, if we can get this to a point where we have enough people listening, it, it helps us to afford to get, uh, you know, better guests on and do all this sort of stuff and hopefully keep a good thing going. And so, one day maybe go uh, weekly. Well, yeah, absolutely. It'll be a lot of content. That will be a lot of content. So subscribe um, to us, like us, put some comments out there. It would help us greatly. Absolutely. So with that said, let's preface this real quick. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, sometimes we record the interview and we go back and, and, and do the kick in and lead in stuff. And that's what's happened today. But we didn't really get a chance to lead in with Alex because... Per nature of the conversation with Alex, it just goes. It just there's so much information. It's just like uh, start recording now. So you you kind of catch us in mid conversation because everything that comes out of his mouth is amazing. So even the general like hey how you doing kind of chat that we do before we actually do the recording of the podcast was amazing. So it's just like start recording now. And you'll hear hear him make a little remark like maybe we should be recording this. We <laughs> left it in because you know we are. Um, oh, and you'll love. You'll love the Oscar story. The Oscar story is worth listening for no other reason. If you don't even like filmmaking and you're just curious about celebrity status stuff, the guy tells the truth about the Oscar scenario. Things and it you is, would never have thought. It's it was, yeah. so bizarre. It's great. So just check it out. Stick around and listen to the wisdom of Alex Funky ASC. Durham, who's my old colleague from UCLA yesterday, and he was talking about exactly that. Because he's, he, is, uh, he, he teaches a... a like a graduate level class at UCLA in film. And um, he was just bemoaning the fact that, that these people come in, they've never seen a silent movie. And the, the one student said, well, I don't know what is, how, how can they express, how can they communicate in a silent movie? So he hauled out, God, what was it? Oh, um, The Trial of, Jane of uh, Joan of Arc by uh, Theodore Carl Dreyer. And she was astonished because there's, of course there's no dialogue. And there's almost no, there's almost no, uh, uh, you know, title cards. It's just done entirely by gesture and and direction and, and where people are looking and what they do with their faces. It's and it's, it's amazing. It's an absolutely you know, gruesome thing to watch because she's you understand exactly what's happening to Joan of Arc. You understand exactly how the judges are, um, you know, how one is sort of in favor of her. And there's no no card like saying, well, this judge, you know, he 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 thinks maybe she was right. It's it's entirely by gesture, and you know the kids just and that was my experience at at um, at Victoria too. I mean, they they never seen um, uh, the French Connection, and and I ran just a couple of clips of it because, for example, in the French, should we be recording this? <laughs> uh, we we are secretly. Yes, okay, sir. thank you. Okay, I was talking about. Uh, screen continuity and you know line of direction all that stuff say, okay let me show you this there's a scene where the, where where um where they're chasing a, a guy and whoever whoever who's the who's the big guy in rich connection um Dean Hackman in, in a Santa Claus Santa Claus suit and they changed screen direction four times and I said well look hey did that bother you that that they they're look running right to left and now they're running left to right and now they're running right to left again because of a very clever way that it was directed in a very clever way that it was cut. That's, I mean, breaking breaking the line of direction is sometimes it's a problem, but many times you don't just have to say, oh gosh, I have to obey the line of direction. No, you have to obey the line of action. Where are these guys going? And 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 it, you don't care that, that oh gosh, they're going to run into each other because they're running this way and then running that way. No, they're not. They're, you know, all they, all they do is like, they're running this way and then they cut back this way and they zoom, come into the frame and run across the street. And now suddenly they're running the other way. And it's, it's part, of, part, of, part of it, of course, is that you're trying to be very efficient in your setups so that you don't have to have to keep going back to the same area and the same angle. So anyway, that was. And then, and then they went and looked at they went and rented it and looked at it and said, oh, my God, well, that, that movie, that's every every crime film of today is, is based on that movie. <laughs> so anyway, it's. Not having people, not having watched films um, is fatal because pretty much anything that you want to do is somebody else has already done it and probably better than you can ever do it. So that's anyway, that's. Uh, <laughs> well, well, I just wanted to follow up on that for a second. There's this um, clip going around right now. I don't know if you've seen it, Alex. I'll send you a link. 
And you know, everybody talks about Tarantino and how he's this, you know, younger people that I talk to talk about how he's this really amazing original voice. And he knows himself, he admits that he's not original, that he's, you know, a pastiche of previous things. And this uh, video clip does a side-by-side -side of some of his more famous scenes and from the films that he would take it from. And some are echoes, some are, you know, you know similar, but there are quite a few of these very iconic um, Tarantino scenes that are straight from, I mean, the shot, the lineup, the um, blocking, everything, straight from, you know, Hollywood, straight from Japanese, straight from film history. And people just, you know, they don't, they're like, oh, they don't realize that looking at the past can inform and make you a better filmmaker. Oh, for sure. And, and also that um, those are not necessarily deliberate imitations as in, oh gosh, I can't figure out how to shoot the scene. Well, let's do it the way they did it in Casablanca. No, it's, 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 it's that that's whatever that scene was has embedded himself in his head. And it's, you look at it and say, okay, this is, that is the right way to do this, to, to, to cover this particular action. Even though they did it in Casablanca, fine, but I'm not copying that. I'm just, I, hey, that's a good trick. I'll use that trick in this, in this framing. I mean, everybody steals from everybody else. God, I mean, the classic example is, is film composers. I mean, they're total thieves. Everything they write is stolen from somebody else's, uh, from somebody else's work <laughs> from you know, 200 years ago. But um, fascinatingly enough, Emmy got a copy of the film called Titanic, which was the 1943 German propaganda film. Wow. Uh oh. And talk about copying. I mean, it's almost frame for frame like uh, Cameron's Titanic. I mean, right out of the storyline. Really? Ever see Jim again? I say, hey, you ever, ever see that German, that 1943 German Titanic film? What do you think of that? <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just, it's crazy. If you ever get a chance to see it, it's, it's, you know, it's long and it's a propaganda film, and they have to paint all the all the British people on the ship as being really evil people, and they're and they're, you know, backstabbing each other and stealing and getting in, and stealing other people's women and on yada yada yada, and it's their fault that the ship sank, and and of course the one German officer, because they're all Germans, right? But 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 the one guy who supposedly is a German officer on an English ship. Is of course the hero. Naturally, he's the one who, who saw this whole what was going on. He's the one who tried to tell the captain to slow down. Anyway, enough said. But it's just so funny. He's talking about you know, if you if you see a good idea, whether it's a, a, a way of shooting a shot or a way of lighting or whatever, it would be crazy to not use it because obviously you've seen it. You've seen it works. You've seen the the, the mechanics of it, and. It's not like saying, "Okay, now watch this." I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna copy the way James Wong Howe lit lit uh, Paul Newman when he comes out on the porch in HUD. No, no, that's not that. It's just like, wow, that's a really beautiful look, and I'm gonna just try that. He, because James Wong Howe is very big on single sources. I mean, he 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 would never use a light that didn't actually belong there. And so, I mean, this shot where where Paul Newman is in darkness inside the house, and he. Walks out onto the porch. There's a single light bulb in the top of the, in the ceiling of the porch, and he walks into the light. And like, oh God, what an amazing presentation! <clears throat> well, now why wouldn't you use that if it was the right thing for the for the particular particular scene? So. Well, yeah, I, that that was kind of where I was going to roll into a question with it, which was you know having spent time talking to you and and having been on set, you know, this idea that um, history pulling from film history. Um, and, and going back and looking at, I mean, how does that affect your own creative process? And I mean, I know how it affected me as a director working with you, maybe sometimes even for you, um, <laughs> because you're a juggernaut of awesome, but you know, how, how does that, that historical perspective alter or benefit your creative process going, you know, when you're producing anything? Well, you, you're very much influenced by the people you work with. So, I mean, a lot, much of the time, I, I find myself saying, "Okay, what would you know? How would Charles Eames shoot this?" Because he had a very simple style of style of lighting and shooting, and but and had a very specific style of framing. And I mean, he sort of drove, drives much of the, my concern about how the frame is, how a frame is made. The fact that that the, which is what what my parents taught me because they were both art artists that that um, uh, the first line of your of your drawing is the four is the fifth line 
of the picture plane because you've already got four edges that are part of the picture, whether you like it or not. And everything has to be has to be related to the window, as it were, whether it's a piece of paper or whether it's a, 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 the edges of the screen. And so, I mean, and, and Charles is a real stickler about about how things related to each other in depth and in brightness. And so, so I mean, that's that's that was a huge. <clears throat> huge force in in because that was when I was really just learning how to do this stuff, and you know, eleven years of doing that with him. And, you know, the thing is that that he would not to. Yeah, he's he's been dead a long time, <laughs> but <clears throat> you know that you would light something. He'd say, okay, to get to this is this is a facsimile of of Tom Jefferson's uh, instructions to go to for to Lewis and Clark, and it's a, so we'll dress this and and we'll put a little bit of. A, Put an ink pot, you know, ink well here, and we'll put a, some stones here, and a little piece of leather. Yeah, 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 yeah. Light it, <clears throat> and then he light it, and then he would go away, and then you come back. You say, yes, that's that's pretty good. Okay, now let's just take two little strings, and hang them down in front of that that baby that's over there. And you take the two little pieces of string, and you put them on a C stand, and kind of dangle down the thing. Ah, oh, yeah, that's much better. And you look at it and you say, Germany, Christmas, because you'd worked in this thing for an hour and a half, lighting this thing, and it's, just, you know, it's the best you could have done. And he comes in and says, put two tiny little shadows through there. And it's like, huh, papers! <laughs> because because he, he, he understood exactly what the dynamic of the frame was. And he wanted when the hand in the, in the sleeve came in and let's say to do the signature or whatever, that he wanted to see that tiny bit of modulation over the back of the hand, the tiny bit of shadow modulation. So that was the kind of stuff that, again, those are, those are all tricks, and these are all tricks that he used a million times. And but but you realize how important that stuff is. And of course, that was you know tabletop stuff. So so it's you got a lot more freedom to, to do it. But <clears throat> but even in large large things, well, lighting miniatures or even lighting you know full size stuff that you know you have a responsibility to, first of all, to use the, the lights that you have in your budget, but also to, to show the things that are, that are important that, and, to, and, and to create depth if you can, but if not, then how can I get away without seeing any depth? I mean, I don't have enough lights to light that entire street, and yet I've got to do this guy walking down the street. Well, what if I just put one light way in the back, and then I'll <clears throat> put him in on a long lens, so he's the only guy in focus. Everything else is just sort of bright sparkles behind him. Because it doesn't matter what the street is, it's just that he can't be walking in a void. <clears throat> so, you know, it, I believe that the, that the process, the process I've always used anyway, it, it has to do with the relationship of the camera to the person or the relationship of the person to the, to the frame. And, you know, if, if you look at, if you look at um, uh, Wes Anderson's stuff, for example, he loves to shoot with wide lenses right up in the people's faces. And of course we were always taught, oh, you can't do that. Well, of course you can't. It's just, it's, it's, oh, you know, it just it stretches people's noses out. Well, don't let them point their nose toward the camera. Put them in a three quarter, three quarter frame. Because now you're pushing into, right next to the person, you're intimate with the person. <clears throat> yeah, it, going back, reminiscing, going back to, uh, when I was doing the, the courses of the course of Victoria, that I said, well, look, there, there's there's three ways that a camera can be involved with the scene. It can be completely. I had like clever buzzwords for these three situations. But it can be a completely detached camera. And that's the the riot is taking place down on the street, and you're looking at it from the top of a tower, and you see everything that's going on. You see the the crowd dynamics, but but you're not really very involved in the riot. And then there's the semi-involved camera, which is that you're actually down there, right next to the riot, and but but nobody's hitting you with a, with billy clubs or anything. But you're right next to it, and you really have a sense of sense of the of the of the, the personal dynamics of these people of these people raging and carrying on, throwing bricks and stuff. And then there's the fully involved camera, in which you're inside the riot, where you're dodging the bullets, and 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 you you essentially become part of the event that you're filming, and. It's very important to think about what, what, uh, what your camera is. Is it a, is it a detached spectator? Because that's you have to be very careful when you use that. Because trying to explain, for example, the you know there in, in um, Seventh Seal, 
there's brilliant use of those, those concepts because sometimes the camera will be laid so far back that you're just looking at a silhouette on the on the hill, like the like death leading the people or whatever. Um, and other times, let's say where he's talking to the priest in the, in his in, in his cell, the camera's like two inches from the guy's face, and it you you are communicating the context of the uh, of the scene by camera position. And you could do it a zillion ways of doing it, but the question is, are, are, are you saying, I want to present two people who are equally and equally in power, equally, um, who, who are, have, have equal uh, uh, stress against each other? Well, maybe that's placing them, you know, balancing the frame. Or let's put, let's make the person who is weakest, but let's make him really big in the frame. And the other guy, his interrogator, um, um, the, Sorry. Um, <laughs> the other guy, the interrogator, is in the back, and yet he's the one who's putting the pressure on the guy. So you're you're looking at the at the, at the, at the head of the priest in the foreground, and you see every you see his how he breathes. You see how he clenches his, the the muscles in his face and so forth, so, because that's what's important. Not what the guy's saying. It's how this guy is reacting. And so, but, but so you're building the frame so as to, to get the maximum uh, emotional impact out of it. Yeah, Alex, <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, because uh, this is one thing that's sort of just come to me, but I think I've always kind of skirted around it. For me, there's, uh, in my mind, I have trouble with the line between, you know, being technical and being creative. And listening to you talk, you, you, you know, it's just, it's just one thing for you, you know, and, and that really always amazes me. And I was just wondering if, is there any sort of distinction between that, like, technical process and the creative process? Or, if, you know, and if there is, how do you deal with it? How do you, how do you manage that? Uh, and if not, how do I get to the point where I don't struggle between, you know, thinking about, okay, technically this must be this, 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 and then I'm not thinking in the back of my head about how, this, you know, just like you said, the use of the cameras to express the, um, you know, the involvement of the audience with the scene. Well, I think there's a, there's a sort of a, uh, corollary is the wrong word, a metaphor for that. And that is the thing I think that, that defeats digital creation of, of stuff, of an environment, is that the digital image is created by one, one person's brain or maybe two people's brains. They're sitting there at their monitors. They're drawing it, they're painting it, and so forth, and they're building it. Okay, now, if, if you were going to build a miniature of that same thing, probably 30 people would be involved in creating it. The lighting, guy, the lighting guys, the camera guys, the, <coughs> the people who dress the set, each one has his own passion. The person who does the, who does the oxides, who does the, 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 the paint colors, the person who puts the dust on the ground, the person who plants the trees. There are so many minds involved in creating that piece, which is to be shot, that it, it, I believe that it gains life for a digital image. And not to say that there aren't brilliant digital images, but they always have a kind of, they the, have the sameness, which is created by the person who, the person who, who, um, who, who, who made the, the, the CG image. And I think that the issue of building, whether it's whether it's a miniature set or whether it's a full size set, that the that the amount of personal contact, handwork, as it were, is very critical, and um, which you might think of as technology, in a sense, putting the camera on the dolly and we're going to lay the tracks through here and we'll put a twenty four millimeter lens on it. We'll do this and this and this. But what you're really trying to set do is okay. How can I suppress the technology so that you don't see it happening? So that so that it's just a filter through which you're looking. You know the the classic example is is that um, you see you know well movies that involve effects whatever where the camera is always pretty static, and you say well okay but it, but what if I were really you know crashing this airplane? I mean, I wouldn't just lock the cameras down. Hell, I'd have I'd have a whole bunch of cameras all over the place, and I'd have I'd have handheld cameras <clears throat> shooting the crowd, and I'd have and I'd have long lenses to try to get details and stuff, and and that way, it would have the life of that these guys I call it fighting for the shot, the fact that they're fighting for the shot, that they're struggling with the 
with the limitation of the technology, the limitations of keeping the crashing airplane in focus and, and the fact that you didn't have time to set up the tripods, you're shooting handheld with the long lens, whatever. But, but, that, but that it's, it's connected to the real world. And um, whereas so many visual effects shots just tend to be just, you know, it's a lock off or it's a little smooth little, little camera move or, or the, or the post-production guy says, oh, it's okay, we'll put some shake in it. Yeah, but that's not the point. It's not that you want the camera to be shaky. It's that you want to, you want to have the feel, the feel of the person behind the camera. Damn it, I can't get the thing in focus. And, ah, oh, shit, that guy bumped me. And oh, how can I recover from that? Oh, I lost it. I'll go over here, put it out of focus, pan back and put it into focus. You know, all these, you know, that, that, that's a funny story, actually. I was one of, <laughs> one of 12, I think, cinematographers who were all camera operators when Steve shot the last Bee Gees tour. Uh, Spirit, oh, wow. Spirits having flown, which was going to be put into made into a huge movie. In the end, it was a dopey TV special. But I mean, there were some some high end. High, well, I was a very low end of the cameraman uh, scale, but a lot of high end cameramen. We had every ca every camera that Panavision had. But Steve would you know got us together and said, "Look, here's the deal: if you lose the sh if you lose the frame for whatever reason, if you lose the frame, just pan off, throw it out of focus." focus Pan back in and put it back into focus because that gives us a place to cut. I think, God, that's really interesting. You know, you can, you, 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 you may, may lose the frame because, because the guy moved quicker than you thought. And instead of just trying to follow him, no, forget it. Just make it, make him, make a, 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 an advantage out of it. Come over here and then come back and pow, come back onto him. So that way the editor has got stuff to cut away with. And that was, a, that was a, to me a tremendous, that was a long time ago. Tremendous, whatever, whenever spirits having flown, whenever that that tour happened, but um, the the fact that you've always got to be thinking about the editor, you've always got to be thinking about how can I give him the best stuff, and if I if I have a have a have a bobble, if I have a, a, an error of some kind, how can I make it big enough so that I can make it look like I meant for it to happen? And uh, what you. As they say, if you don't know how to pronounce the word, always say it loud. But that was that was a revelation to me. You know that that that, that you can always recover somehow. I, I'm over here making uh like dancing around, like making mind blown uh, gestures to Horst. I wish you could see it. If one day I'll spring for the expensive uh, uh, three camera package for Skype or whatever it is, three caller. Uh, the thing, like all that stuff, blows my brain because it's it's the kind of stuff that um, I think is is. Sometimes I see young operators and they don't pick that up. And then I'm in the edit bay and I'm cursing them and I'm screaming at them. But from personal experience, having worked with you on Ether, one of the things that was fascinating, and Horst and I talked about it, I'm constantly doing lens study where I just, I look at frames and I try and figure out how do I make my shots? Because I, I can shoot, I'm okay, but how do I make my shots look cinematic? And you touched a little bit on that. Obviously, that comes with some pedigree, being that you're you know, an ASC member. Uh, you get to carry the card of a cinematographer. I think I, I, that's an honor that I think you earn. And, I, and I'm, I'm beyond flattered to even having talked to you about film stuff in the past. But rolling into that, I mean, how do you approach making something cinematic? Because looking at just frames in ether, and that's my one-on-one -on -one experience, Horst and I and you all together working as a team, the depth in your shots was so simple to, to, to your setup was, but then when I looked at it, everything that I needed to read was there plus more, but it was nothing was, you know, long lens, bokeh, or any of that kind of, you know, modern aesthetic. I mean, how do you approach making something cinematic? I know it sounds dumb, but it's, it's, it bugs me that I can't figure it out. Well, I think that you have to define what you mean by cinematic. Does, does cinematic mean, oh gosh, that's cool? That's what I always call showing off. And you'll see shots where, and I say, ah, it's just showing off. Or is it about, or is it about being as as efficient and concise as you can be to tell the story for each cut? How many people are in the frame? What's their relationship? What should they, is there a way that I can actually explain visually what their relationship is? Um, is, there, is there a way that I can move the camera so that suddenly we realize that what we thought, what, what we thought the relationship was, actually it's not that? And, and you look at, this, look at this, this, you know, look at lots and lots of films and stuff. And um, for example, the uh, Red Desert, which is I think one of the most beautiful films ever made, absolutely gorgeous. And it's got really sophisticated use of the 
changing relationships because let's say there's a there's a, a, a man and a woman and then another man who's sort of the, the, the intruder in this in this this between these two guys and and he's trying to explain how visually how what's happening and so that he does a dolly shot this is a film that I don't know if you've seen it but it, this is a film definitely worth looking at it's absolutely packed with cool stuff but they it's a dolly shot where they keep where he keeps the relationship with the two, the two men, the man and the woman walking, and then they stop. But he keeps on dollying, and then he stops, and the guy comes in, and so he's looking at these guys at a distance, and then he comes down, <clears throat> and then and then they start walking towards him, and then he starts dollying again. So, I mean, in a sense, he's that that the, what, what, what Rossellini is trying to explain, trying to show is the there's two people who are in love now. There's a man who with whom the girl was in love before. How can we? Uh, explain this. So we're going to stay close to the man and the woman, and as they're walking, it's a dolly shot. They're dolly, they're dollying in front of them, backing up, backing up, backing up. And the other guy, way in the distance, comes down the down down a little kind of berm, a little bank, and he runs towards them. Okay, as he comes up to them, they stop, but the camera keeps moving, so it's the same speed. But now you're in a sense leaving them in a in a kind of limbo. And then they have a little altercation, and, and then and then they start to walk. And when they start to walk, the camera stops moving, and they walk up to the camera, and then he starts dollying it. It's so elegant because <clears throat> he's he's explained in a sense what happened. And okay, now that they're now now that we got rid of that that third that third character, now we'll continue with the with their walking and 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 their and they're talking in the relationship they're supposed to have, instead of going in and, and trying to show what. Because we already know what this problem is between the, the the man and the woman and the other guy, so we don't have to don't have to go in and show what they're talking about. No, let's look at it from a distance and say, look, those guys are having a very painful discussion, argument, whatever. Let's just stand back here and wait. Okay, now they settle. The guy, the, the third guy, walks away, and they walk towards us again. It's I, don't, I just love that shot. It's so neat because 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 of the way they did, and um, but. I got how I got off on that one, but <clears throat> um, how how can you define what is cinematic? Um, I mean, you could say, well, it the characters are moderately well exposed, and they're all in the in, on the screen in the way they're supposed to be. <clears throat> but or you can get really tricky and use all kinds of strange super wide lenses and low angles and stuff. But it's a case of What's the right tool to show the characters and to show their relationship? Yeah, and and the the cinematic is is something that um it's a it's just a feeling I get from certain things. Like I can watch an indie film and it will be beautiful cinematography and it's lit well, it's exposed well, everything's great. But then there's just something missing from it. There's some. It's kind of like when people describe cooking. You know, uh, you know me. I'll always go to a food analogy. But someone describes cooking and they say. This dish was really good because it was clearly made with love. There's something in that same vein, applying it to cinema. For example, Jurassic Park, to me, is one of the most amazing film studies. I can scene study that that movie, not necessarily for content, but the lensing in that film, the choice of lenses, um, of, of the angle, the blocking. Every time I watch it, I'm moved because I want to be there with them and I feel like I'm... I'm I'm I mean it pulls me into the movie more it's and that's what I mean by cinematic is the language you know is that just something from experience um, well Jurassic Park's a, a, an interesting example because um you can kind of tell where the high points are you know they, they got the they got the juice turned off on the fence uh oh they're going to turn it back on are they going to be able to climb over in time before they before they get before they get zapped how do you build that scene I mean, do you do you get really up because what because what because what that scene is? I think that's what happens right there. They're claiming over it for some reason, but it's it's not about them. It's about the fence. So that means it's because that's you know they're going to do whatever they do. But the fact is, the fence is the enemy in the in, in that little sequence. And so you've got to say, how can how can we make the fence loom? How can we make it be strong? Be be the, the dominating character. Because you, you you know they're not going to get killed because otherwise then the movie would be over. So, <clears throat> but but how will they? How 
you're always moving to, you know, focusing on what's the next thing is going to happen. How are they going to do it? How are they going to get off the fence? I mean, the, the, the scene where the where the bad guy with the with the genetic material goes off and he's trying to get off the island, and then the little sort of guy with the fluttery fluttery ears goes. Ha! <laughs> That's that's a that's a great that's a great shock shock shot because he'd been kind of playing with the thing and he's saying get out of the car and 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 and, and then suddenly without any warning there the, 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 this sort of annoying little creature suddenly becomes a thing with, with with big teeth a lot of that's just timing that's there's no particular um, special way of doing that it's just basically shoot it so that you can so that so the thing is in your face. But well even a, a classic film Night of the Hunter is one of my visual references I use a, a good bit because of the way it's lit. But the shot structure in that is another one that I watch it and it pulled me in because it's a relatively I'm not bashing on it but maybe to modern audiences it's a relatively slow film if you just tell them the storyline. Absolutely. And, and and it's and it's 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 an amazing film. Beautifully beautifully say beautifully shot, beautifully framed. Although it's at the same time, it's very stagey, and you know you feel like every many 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 shots you say, okay, I can see what he was doing here, but you don't mind it because because it's kind of the whole the whole world that these people are living in is kind of a stagey world, and and uh, you know there's a lot of a lot of process projection and a lot of sort of framing things through other things and stuff, and but but. But that is its one of its merits is that it does work that way. The film, to me, uh, what I noticed is um, the blocking uh, and how the camera interacted with the actors with the frame, um, and it did. And it also would feel stagey. Like there's a particular scene I remember where they're discussing in the house, and you see two people in frame, and they're framed up very nicely, and one of them walks, and then the camera moves about five feet. And then now they're perfectly framed the other way. And I think they're on the other side of the frame. And then one of them goes through the door and the other one goes to the door. And then the camera moves and follows them and turns to the right. And now they're perfectly framed again. So it, it did, on one hand, like you said, it felt very staged. It's very, okay, and now this. And now this. But it was so well executed, it almost felt like a dance. Like we're, you know, I want to see what they're going to, to bring to me next. Yeah, and, and, and that particular scene... The fact is that was the most efficient way to get the information about what's happening across. It's without any cuts. There's no cuts in, right? It's, it's I think it's one continuous shot. Yeah, that's my recollection. There's uh, several several minutes without a cut. Yeah. So, I mean, you can call that oh, he's just showing off, but or or you could say, look, hey, this scene works like a stage play in the sense that. <clears throat> We're, all we're doing is, is as if we're, 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 we're giving you a little closer view of what they're doing. And every time the camera moves, it's to specifically set up the relationship between the people. And, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, 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 it's a very elegant. Who, uh, who's the guy, direct, famous actor who directed it? Um, oh, Lawton. Peter Lawton, was it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. It's the only, only movie ever made. And then he said, screw that. I'm, not gonna, I'm never going to do, go do that again. <laughs> we all know that feeling with the film industry. You know, in a sense, it's like it's like a theatrical director saying, "Wow, I wish I could. I wish I could, on stage, show, ah, oops, oh, uh, show what these people were thinking, because the nearest person viewing them in the audience is still forty feet away, and and I wish I could show what they're thinking. Well." Hey, I got the opportunity. I can do it. I can roll in and see the guy scowling at that point. I can roll in and see how how the, how the woman turns away from him. So it's it's in a sense it's it's a it's a theatrical director luxuriating in the, his the new power of being able to emphasize what he wants to emphasize. I think we need to put a disclaimer at the beginning of this that people need to have their dictionary with them uh, because. Uh, Alex's vocabulary is uh, is great. I love it. That's see. I talk simple, Alex. I I, I don't I don't have a good uh, vocabulary. But I think that goes back to your your reading. One thing I know about you is you you read voraciously, and uh, I'm interested to see how the reading has affected your filmmaking, your craft, and you know just kind of um, what that's done for you. Well, I mean, somebody at one point said that radio is theater of the mind and of course reading is theater of the mind also you've got you, you, the the artist the writer is 
trying to build a, a world for you that you can that you can live in and watch these people going on. I, I mean, I, I have to say I read very, very few contemporary books, largely because I think that there's a lot of carelessness in writing and modern writing. And I mean, but I'll, so I'll, I'll go back to I'll go back to Dorothy Sayers, let's say, because for whether you like Lord Peter Whimsey or not, these are novels not of detection. They are novels of manners, novels of a lost time. And she evokes it beautifully. I think that's why everybody loves um, uh, Downton Abbey so much because it evokes, it evokes a lost time. Not that we necessarily want to go back to that, but that it, it gives us a, a a kind of crystalline view of you know all these these people in their complicated relationships, as complicated as people on a chess uh, pieces on a chessboard. And <clears throat> but anyway, yeah, uh, reading wise, well. Uh, Well, I've always I've always been reading something. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean it's it's like whatever. When I was a little kid, I would never go anywhere without a book in hand, just in case. <laughs> and um, I think that a lot of the times, stuff that I read is is pictorial, as it were. It's it's presenting, let's say, some uh, something happening in a desert or something happening in a forest, and. I can visualize exactly what the writer is trying to tell, and I can also then visualize my picture of what that would look, what this particular whatever the scene is, what it would look like. And so you're sort of laying one on top of the other. I'm just going to try to remember who who um, somebody was talking about a a film version. Sorry, I can't remember <laughs> uh, a film version of a book and. The person hated the film because the characters didn't look like what he thought they looked like. He'd love these people in, in, in reading about them, and suddenly a person whom he visualizes being tall and thin and turns out to be short and fat. No, that's wrong. <laughs> that, of course, of course, was part of why Peter was so careful in casting in rings, because he knew that everybody has a picture of what the characters look like. He wanted to try to find a kind of, a kind of common ground for what Gandalf looks like. Or what um, you know, what Aragorn looks like, and I think he did that really, really well. I think he kind of missed it on the Hobbit for this for the same reason, because because the characters of the dwarves, which are well established in the in 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 the book, he didn't match the characters in the movie. Mid match them up with the book guys. The book guy, the book dwarves are well defined, and uh, so that's a classic case of of being able to say, ah, oh, what a disappointment. I mean, that's not. Anyhow, any thoughts, you know, anything like that, the way I thought the, the goblin realm was going to look or whatever. But, and then I, of course, I also haunt ancient technical books. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an absolute love of mine to, to get ancient technical books, which, of course, ties into steampunk and whatnot also. But um, there, <clears throat> you look at how people visualize how things were done whether it was medicine or engineering or whatever. Um, and you can see exactly what their logic was, even though it was flawed. But you can see what their logic was. And you can see what, in a sense, looking back 100 years, looking back 200 years, what the thought process was to say, I'm here. How can I get there? How can I cure this? How can I get rid of this fever? How can I make this make this make the pier of this bridge stronger? And the more we, the more you read about things written at the time about how stuff was done, you say, wow, that's, you can see how he was skirting around the problem, but he was missing the one thing he needed because it hadn't been invented yet or it hadn't been created yet. And yet he still solved the, he still solved the problem. And in a sense, that's, you know, in, in, in filmmaking, you're kind of doing the same thing. You're, you're saying, okay, I have the following situation. I have an, a, a street at night, and the two the two guys are going to walk up the street, and a car is going to come screeching up, and they're going to jump in. Okay, now I need to know who the guys are. I need to know what their relationship is. I need to know why they're on this street. Probably. I need to know something a little bit about what kind of car it is. Is it a, is it a limo or is it a junky old Model T? Um, and then you have to take all that stuff and say, okay, now throw this out now. What actually matters? The only thing that matters in this is they get in the car. 
all the rest of the stuff's just window dressing. The, the cool looking backlit wet street with the street lights and the and the reflection in the in the in the in the wet pavement and stuff. That's all just window dressing. Except that it wouldn't work very well to just have two guys they jump in a car. You have to you have to set up the gag, and so you you have to first you set it up the best possible way you can. Then you go through and take out the stuff that you either can't do or it's too difficult, and you kind of boil it down to its essence. It's it's very much like making stock. You're using the the, the cooking analogy. It's like well you you have to brown the bones, and then you and you put them in the stock pot and you put the necessary ingredients in. But I mean, at some point, at some point, it's not yet stock. Everything you've done, everything but you have to either clarify it or you have to add some one more component, and 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 then you've simplified it to its essence. But before that, it's just a bunch of stuff that's in a pot with, with boiling water in it. I like that. Uh, so, Alex, I'm I'm going to ask you a hypothetical question now. Um, so let's pretend um, you know, let's say the Earth is going to be destroyed and. Um, you're, you have to send one film with a whole bunch of people that um, have, you know, don't know anything about filmmaking, and this film will be the, the seed of future filmmaking in, uh, in the colony in space of Earthlings. What, what film would that be? It would be something about a telephone ringing. <laughs> <laughs> well, the question is, do you... Do you want to have a film that has the most filmmaking uh, devices, or the film that's the most touching, or the film that has has the greatest sense of 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 humanity? I mean, that's a, that's a very very hard question to answer because is this, is this going to be the film upon which the future the future race will build everything it knows about making film? <laughs> Well, let's go with three. Let's, uh, all three of those aspects. So you have the technical one that has like all the the tricks. You have the um, you know, like you said, the one that demonstrates humanity, and then the one that is you know perhaps the most you know uh, affecting of the soul. Breathless. Okay. Good. Goddard in Breathless laid down about pretty much the entire Bible of filmmaking. He did every the every shot is can be studied forever about how he staged it and admittedly there's flaws but how he staged it what he did how he lit it how he placed the actors it's it's it is it is the ultimate i think it's not necessarily the best film in the world if you're if you're talking about a film that that set shows how to how to tell a story boy that's it's it's very definitely at the top of the list so which is funny to me because you know uh hopefully everyone will take the the 20 seconds to Google in your name and go to IMDb and let their jaw hit the floor uh, with the, the credits that, you know, you've, you've garnered over the years. Uh, uh, certainly every single one of them has influenced me as a, as a filmmaker, storyteller, as a fan, right across the board. But one of the things that was interesting to me that you brought up very early on, and you have a lot of science fiction, a lot of fantasy pieces on here. One of the things you brought up very early on when we were working on a, on Ether and on talking about the science fiction side of things, and this is just a general thing for writers that came from a, a, an ASC cinematographer, was you said, don't put brackets around stuff. And and Alex, I'll tell you, I to this day, I tell every film student I meet, I tell every writer I meet, I tell everyone that the best piece of, of writing advice I was ever given came to me from a cinematographer. Um, and, and it completely changed the way I approached it. Can you kind of talk about that just a little bit? Because your experience obviously lends very well to that kind of world. Yeah, I, I've always felt that, you know, if you look at life or whatever, that very few things get explained. Things happen. Some things you understand and say, okay, well, that, that the mail's in the mailbox because the mailman put it there. And other things you don't understand. And either A, you don't need to understand them, or B, you will understand them eventually. Why shouldn't film be the same way? So if you if you try to make a big point out of the fact that the guy is loading his pistol or whatever, well, in a sense that's that's okay. He's getting ready to go out on a mission. But how important is that? That's you're you're making a deal on something that actually is relatively minor compared to the fact that he's going to have to go out on the street and and deal with the with the bad guy. Um, I, I thought that the, that uh, that the Martian almost got it, the film The Martian. Uh, almost got it, but there was still a little bit of, you'd call it expository action, 
where he, where it was it was the the editors the director whoever felt that they had to explain how the solar panels work but in the real world if a if a plumber's putting in a piece of pipe he doesn't explain what he's doing he just puts the damn piece of pipe in and i i felt that there was a great deal too much of expository shooting in that film explaining what something is or explaining how something works and you know i i i'd like to uh, Let's let's go back to the Patrick O'Brien books, the the, uh, the you know the Audrey and, and Captain Audrey and, and Doctor Maturin books, of which Master and Commander was the one film that was made. But um, you read those books, and I I saw exactly what he was doing from the very beginning because he use an expression, a term, a concept, and he say, okay, well I don't know what that is, but when I need to know, I'll, he'll tell me. And other people that I've suggested reading these books say, God, I don't get it. I mean, it keeps talking. I don't know what he's talking about. Say, hey, just persevere and all will be well. And and it's true because if he if he mentions a particular kind of a kind of splice or something, well, okay. When you need to know how that splice, what that splice is going to do, he'll he'll build it into the narrative. He doesn't put anything in quotes. He doesn't explain anything. He doesn't. He doesn't have anything in in parentheses saying, "Oh, well, this is the kind of splice that was used by the by the mariners to tie the, the this the, the that." No, it's just these guys are just talking. And you know, a very 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 popular um, writer, um, uh, Patricia Cornwell, who does the Scarpetta series of of, of books, has this ongoing habit, and I love the books. I have to say, but. It's ongoing habit. She's always explaining stuff. She's always putting stuff in, putting stuff in, in brackets. She's always trying to, trying to, to, to make, make it clear. But it doesn't matter. Do I need to know what kind of computer Scarpetta has? Doesn't matter. Unless somebody comes along and says, hey, you're still using a Dell. That thing sucks. Why don't you get an Apple? And, and that leads into some, 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 some leads into, it leads into uh, some, some actual, something that's important to the plot. I would like to think that, that the image on the screen explains what you have to know. You don't need to have any, any, anything on the soundtrack, certainly, but you should find the image so that, find an image that explains the, the, the thingness of, let's say, solar panels in the case of the Martian. This is, okay, there's, there's, a certain, there's a certain thingness to it. And you don't need to know necessarily how it hooks up or anything. You just, you just need to know those are solar panels. Okay, but what's but what's the one magic shot that they didn't have? Okay, he's I got, I got, he's done all the Paul always he's explained exactly how not explained visually how the stuff hooks together. What's the one key shot? It's the shot where he pushes the plug in, <laughs> and that is the exclamation point. That is the yeah. point where you say, "Aha, I get it." And a lot of the other, you know, not to change the subject, the classic film of of the putting quotes around things is is uh, executive decision <laughs> which i did the crash at the end of but it it's a film it's a film directed by an editor and and it's you want to go all the way through it you want to say hey chris we get it it's okay. We understand where he's going. We understand that he's crawling along the inside of the hull of the, of the airplane. It's okay. You don't have to give us every single solitary thing that happens. And, but it's an editor's film, and and he 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 feels that, that that he doesn't want the audience to get confused. I don't care what part of the fuselage the guy is in. I don't need to see him getting there. You see him going up into the hatch, and then next shot he's wherever he needs to go. Anyway. <clears throat> Um, I can't really explain the putting quotes around things other than this, that, that I, I, I really believe that you should put the things on the screen that explain least. Don't put them in there just because you're afraid that somebody won't get it. That these are solar panels or that this is a, this is a, you know, a, bre a breaching splice or whatever. No, don't just, just, well, they, they did it, uh, what I, and I'm not a, a tremendous fan. I don't hate the movie. I don't love the movie. They actually did it to me in, um, George Miller did it in Mad Max, uh, Furious 
Fury Road. Um, uh, they don't explain anything in that movie at all. I mean, the, the ludicrous nature of these giant vehicles in a world without gas uh, makes no sense to me. And, you know, that's mine. That's my one that I'm like, I'll, you know, I'm forced to buy it. I don't really have a, a choice. Um, it also was slightly to detriment because then my logic brain is going, but wait a second, you know, I, I don't tell me it's earth. I don't need to know where something is. Just let it be what it is. That. That would be my only movie I could ever think of that maybe the the quotes um, uh, could have been used slightly. That movie, I think, just asks you to just sort of say, okay, this is going to be strange. This is going to not necessarily make perfect sense, but hey, this is a world that I created. Have a good time. And yeah, it, it, indeed, there are a lot of stuff, things going on. I say, who are these guys? And But just think what it would have taken if, if you had explained how this culture was organized and who the, what the hierarchy of power was and how do they, why do they control the water? And it would have been a different story. It might've been a, an equally good story, but that's is basically this story is, is a story about guys driving crazy cars across the desert. <laughs> and in a sense, all this other stuff, controlling the water and where, you know, where do they get the gas from and what's in that spherical tank, which I love that thing that they're towing and, it's it's there purely for the for the visual elegance of it, and you could do it. Let's do it. Make another movie where it's just which which doesn't have any chase, and it's just about how the guy with the skull mask. I don't know any of these things, but you know how, how did he gain power, and how do the war boys, uh, you know, what do they eat or whatever? Um, that's a whole other movie. No, no, totally. thought, uh, terrific visual, terrific visual piece. I mean, it was just amazing. And I only saw it on disc. I didn't, I didn't see it in the, in the movie theater, but the kids are saying, well, how did they do that? And how did they do that? And how did they do that? So you're constantly thinking, okay, well, he's gone so over the top. Now those guys on those long bendy poles, well, they obviously hired those guys from Cirque du Soleil, but that guy jumping over the, over the top of the thing on a motorcycle. Well, let's see. Now guys can jump motorcycles. Okay. So that's a composite, but when he spins and crashes into that piece of metal, that's obviously not. That's obviously CG. So, in a sense, you don't have, want to think too much about what what he's showing you because then you get wrapped up in how did he do it? Yeah. What part of the the, the, the most a huge amount of it is blue screen or green screen? Huge amount. Um, and you really have to admire the guys who shot the plates that went in behind that stuff because you it's it's very very good. Very good green screen. Wow. Uh, it's beautiful. And uh, I do have a, a personal question uh, that's important to me because I find it fascinating. It might be my only other chance to do this. Alex, what's it like to win an Oscar twice? Three times, technically, right? Three times? Twice for Lord of the Rings? Once for... what's Once for Total Recall. Yeah. Well, the Total Recall, let's go back to the easy one, which was the Total Recall one was... We were up against a number of films, among them Dick Tracy, which was beautiful, and I forget what the other ones were. But the way it works is that you know you have, they have what they call the Bake Off, where the seven pre preliminary choices are screened. Little clips, ten-minute clips of the films are screened. The the people who worked on it uh, give their little pitch and so forth, and then everybody votes. And the problem was that in that particular year. Nobody got a score high enough to actually say this is the one that we're going to give the award to. Oh, wow. So, what do we do? It has happened in the past that in a particular category, the award simply isn't given. Or, as has happened in the past many times, particularly with Dennis Muir, and he has three or four of these, um, they say, okay, we'll make it, we won't make it a competitive Oscar, but we will make it as a. Um, not an honor, honorable, honorary Oscar, but it's a special achievement award. So it's a real Oscar, just like the real one, the, the other one. But it's, but it's a special achievement award. So we got that. So we knew that we were going to get it. So we all went in our tuxedos and 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 went up on the stage and and, and, and got the thing. But I mean, it's kind of a cheat because Dennis, as I say, Dennis Mirren has several of those because so often Star Wars would be so much his his various Star Wars would be so much above anything else in the special in the visual effects category that it's just like well nobody else even qualified so and i mean as far as winning the other the, the other ones well it was a huge 
it was a, it was a huge treat. And, um, you know, it's, it's very mechanical. The whole process is very much organized around the fact that basically it's a TV show and, um, everything's done to time. Everything has to be done, done because they have a commercial break coming up and they have to build everything so they can hit the commercial break exactly on time. And, um, you know, you, you get to go to the, you go to the rehearsal where you get up on the stage and there's a gigantic countdown clock, a 45 second countdown clock, huge with letters like two feet high that are, that's out there in the front of you. And the idea is, well, once your feet hit the stage, the clock starts and 45 seconds later, you're gone, whether you're gone or not. And, but it's the, but it's the director's decision. If it's somebody who's really, you know, like, like some really significant or something, well, maybe they'll let him go on longer, but us guys who are just you know, bozos, we get the 45 seconds or something in the case of total Rico, we didn't even get that. Um, and then, and then you're gone and they hustle you off and then you go to the press room and they ask you dopey questions and then you go someplace else and get photographed and then they stick you in a little dark room and leave you. <laughs> you sort of forget about you. I mean, they don't even have like drinks or anything. You're just, you're just in this, you're just like, oh, okay. And not even a TV to see what's happening in the, on the show. And, okay. Well, I hope they haven't forgotten about us. And then finally somebody comes and says, come on, quick. And you have to dash, dash out of the room and dash around through the lobby and dash in and, and, and jump into the, you're back in your seats because it's a commercial break. So you can do this stuff during commercials. And of course, but your seat is filled in because there's all these guys in formal dress, all these guys who are used to fill in the hole. So you never, in the audience, you never see a hole, never see an empty seat. So you dash in and, 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 and he's supposed to be alert to the fact that, okay, the, the real owner of the seat is comes, he jumps out and you jump in. And it's hectic. It's, it's, it's very, um, by the book, but other than that, you know, it was kind of fun. <laughs> story was so much more than I thought it would be. That was amazing. Like so much. I never even imagined. Uh, Alex, this has been, uh, as always, anytime I talk to you, uh, of course, it's just like, it's amazing. And there's just so much So thank you for, uh, for chatting with us. Uh, just, is there anything you want to, Part with, I mean, we have a lot of, um, I say a lot, <laughs> we have people that listen to our show that are, you know, professionals, and often they're, they're the working professional, you know, it's, it's, it's not necessarily somebody who's just listening in their basement who wants to film, it's most of our, you know, audience are people that are out there gripping or doing, you know, sound and lighting. Any, any words of wisdom for people, um, you know, bozos like us in the, uh, in the film industry that uh, don't, uh, that have to stick to the 45 second clock? The work of a cinematographer, a key grip, a sound recordist, whatever, that work consists of taking your skill and laying it on top of whatever it is that you're doing, laying it on top of putting that C-stand up or focusing that light. And you have got to keep in your head every time that you've done this, even though this is a brand new way to put a C-stand up, or it's a brand new way to position the mic, but that has got to be influenced by everything that you've learned, that you have personally done, everything that you've watched other people do. You've got to digest that and have that in your in your in your little flip book, so you can say, okay, for this situation, here's where the mic goes. For this situation, here's how I can make this C-stand more 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 uh, safer or more efficient. And I think none of this stuff is intuitive. It always involves involves thought, even though perhaps you don't realize you're thinking about it. So I'm trying to get to get to the idea that any work, whether it's carving a stone into a into a sculpture or setting a C-stand, any work is is based on the sum total of everything you've learned, seen, heard, dreamed of. And it's very important to not approach any of these tasks as just being, I do this for a paycheck. You have to approach it as saying, this is this is me this is it. And I'm going to do this the best way I can. Oh, that was uh, the wonderful, talented, intelligent, and wise Alex Funky. Yep. My brain has, I, I think the gestures when you and I were, you know, we, we sit yeah. in the studio together, like I made the brain blown, the like exploding. Yeah. yeah like, oh my, great. just, he floored me. Now I have like a list of books and movies and yes. other content to go dig into. That's that, you know, I'm, I'm, He's like an encyclopedia of, of film knowledge. Oh, it's and, insane. And 
it's not just that he ha- he has the knowledge; he he can access it, and is like I get, you know I have trouble coming up with simple words like dog. I mean, like he accesses this complex information instantly and can apply it to the conversation and can apply it to problems, and that is probably why he has three Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, and I tried to hint at it a little bit from a filmmaker perspective when you you know. It, it was a little daunting for me. You had already had a relationship with him, but it is slightly daunting to step into uh, a relationship with a guy that has that much knowledge and Oscars and experience. And on, and on Ether, we were very fortunate to have quite a few crew members in that spot. And, you know, most of my time initially was spent with, with Alex and, and David. But with Alex, like, never one time did he ever, none of them did, but specifically speaking to Alex, never one time did he ever make me feel, you know, less. In fact, he would elevate me up and... You know, it just what an experience just alone. And I say that to say, if you have a chance to work with somebody that has this kind of, you know, expertise, do it. Yeah, it's better than it's better than any film school you can do. It's better than, you know, and and obviously, you know, we were proponents of getting out there and doing it yourself. But if you can get, you know, somebody with a lot of experience that is that is good at uh, sharing their knowledge like Alex is. You learn so much just by hanging out with them on set and watching how they do things. Absolutely. And, you know, we keep saying, you know, Oscar, Oscar. But I think for me the reason why that's such an amazing thing is because, like you said, Drew, you're just standing next to a a, a guy who's fun and who is friendly. And there's this weird thing about Oscars and those amazing, you know, artist people out there and, like, they're an other. And Alex is very much not an other. He's very much one of us. And I think that's why he fits on the show so well. No, he's perfect. Alex is the definition of being between the line, right? I mean, the guy has influenced everything, every aspect of it. And so, again, great advice. Uh, a quick question for the for you guys listening. If anybody, we talked to Alex, he would like to come back. And if we do that, we just throwing it out there, if, if you think it's a cool idea or not. But what about if we set up where we give you guys a, a week or two to kind of come up with some questions and you can email them over to us and literally have your questions answered by Alex the best he can. And if you pull up his IMDb, he can answer a lot of questions about a lot of big movies. And don't forget uh, our email address, which is uh, between the line podcast at gmail.com. Again, or, that's between the line podcast at gmail.com. Or you can visit us at frame 29 films. That's frame two nine films.com. And we're also on iTunes. We are. Uh, you, you know, or if you're really lazy like me, you can type in F29F. Oh, yeah, that's good. Com. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're out there, and we, we like feedback, too. Uh, we like critique. So any ideas, thoughts, comments, questions, anything, just fire them over to us. And, you know, we, we, we're pretty proactive about that stuff. So with that said, uh, what's that? Your sponsors. Well, we plugged them on the front. I thought we plugged them in the front and the back. No, no. We only the, so they need to start sending us more coffee if they're going to yeah, get yeah. that. I mean, I have no problem if they want to bring us more coffee. Maybe they'll put a coffee pot directly in here. If we have a barista. Oh, now you're talking. In the podcast studio the entire time, that, that would change the game. Exa- think about that for, uh, you know, for advertising. You just hear the, the little as they're making us yeah. the coffee in the middle of the show. Yeah. Maybe we'll start just putting those in. We'll just lie. Oh, yes. It make is radio. Look, uh, look cool. Yeah. Because we're not that cool. Yeah. <laughs> so not. All right, with that said, we'll wrap it up. So uh, as always, stay frosty, stay sharp, read your books, and cut. Thank you for listening to the Mobcast Network.